Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 60. We're now on lockdown, by the way. <laughs> no one comes or goes. You're trying to phone somebody from first service and see how it went. The topic, when Stephen tells the Jewish leadership that they are resisting the Holy Spirit, they respond by stoning him to death. Our title, Resistance is Fatal. I always try and flush out you Star Trek fans. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning and the opportunity to open your word and to study it, Lord, and to be studied by it and to see Jesus in it. Lord, draw close to us. Envelop us with your love and share with us great and wonderful truths. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, amen. You'd have to call Stephen a history buff. He was able to summarize 2,000 years of Jewish history in one chapter. The talk he gave can be read aloud in just about five minutes' time. Starting with Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, he follows Israel through the time of the patriarchs to settlement and slavery in Egypt, to the exodus with Moses, into the promised land, to King Solomon building the temple at Jerusalem, and just for good measure towards the end, he throws in the prophets. It was more than just a quick overview. Stephen had been seized by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and was accused of undermining God's leaders, God's law, and God's land. His history lesson highlighted all three of those topics. In the end, what Stephen said was not so much a defense as it was his own accusation. Looking ahead for a moment to his conclusion, we read verse 48 don't have time to wait till you get there, otherwise that's another 10 minutes. <laughs> However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Stephen was accusing them with regard to the land, their leaders, and the law. In verses 48 through 50, he touched upon the land. The Jews were so concerned about the land and the physical temple in the land that they were forgetting that God could not be confined to a place or to a building. Then in verses 51 and 52, he touched upon their leaders. Throughout their history, the Jews had persecuted and killed their leaders. The Sanhedrin had just done the same to Jesus. And then in verse 53, touched upon the law of Moses, it was they who were breaking God's law and not him. History hurts. Dragging him outside the city, they took up large stones and pelted his body until he was physically dead. No matter to Stephen, 
He had shown them that their land and their leaders and their law were all things that prefigured the coming of their Lord, Jesus Christ. His earthly ministry was over, and Stephen was received into heaven by the Lord himself. Stephen was able to find Jesus all the way through the Scriptures. In the end, he was enabled to follow Jesus all the way through suffering. We'll organize our thoughts around those two points as we analyze Stephen's arguments and accusations. First of all, in verses 1 through 48, you are able to find Jesus all the way through the Scriptures. Stephen had been engaging in spiritual dialogues and debates in the Jewish synagogue of the freedmen. He was proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was their promised Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. Unable to refute the wisdom and power of his words, the Jews falsely accused him and put him on trial for blasphemy. Blasphemy was a capital offense. Stephen's defense seems unorthodox until you realize that it was more an accusation than a defense. He turned the accusation against his accusers. They had accused him, for example, of speaking against Moses, a most revered leader. He began insightfully with their very first leader, Abraham, in verses 1 through 8. And so let's read that. Then the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Joseph, or Jacob, excuse me, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. Stephen skipped rapidly through Jewish history, and so will we. If you want to get the whole backstory, you'd have to read most of the Old Testament. Abraham was the father of the Hebrew nation. He was a Gentile who was called by God to follow him by faith to a land of promise. Through him, God would raise up a new nation, the nation of Israel, his chosen people. Abraham's son Isaac would have a son, Jacob, who would have the sons who would become the 12 patriarchs or leaders of the 12 tribes that were the nation of Israel. Now, why start with the story of Abraham? Well, it's because Stephen wanted to establish his first point. Though Abraham was their father, their patriarch, their ultimate leader, he never had any land and he didn't have the law. Stephen used the word land four times in these few verses and the word place one more time. He made it clear that Abraham never had the land as his inheritance and he was not given the tabernacle nor did he ever worship in any temple. And it's obvious that Abraham did not have the law of Moses. He predated Moses. He was way before Moses. 
Instead, God gave him personal promises. The Jews who were accusing Stephen were all about the land and the law. Their original leader, Father Abraham, had neither. Without them, Abraham was able to have such close fellowship with God that Scripture calls him the friend of God. That's in James chapter 2. As important as the land was and is, and as important as the law was and is, they were never ends in and of themselves. They were always a means to an end. They were the means to bring a person to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They pointed them to Jesus. And so in seven verses, Stephen summarized Genesis chapters 12 through 36 and told them that uh, the land, that, that their initial leader, who they had such respect for, had none of the things that they were interested in, and yet was close to God. Stephen next described the typical treatment of their leaders by the Jews, and he began with Joseph, and it's found in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And he says in verse 9, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, of course, the story of Joseph, an amazing story. What Stephen focused on was their persecution of Joseph. The very person God had raised up to lead them was despised and rejected by them. You see, they were accusing Stephen of uh, despising a leader like Moses. And Stephen is masterfully showing them how the Jews always despise their leaders. And it wasn't him that was despising their leader, Jesus. It was the Jews. And we'll get to that. Now, you could also read between the lines as Stephen spoke. Joseph was not just a leader of the Jews. He was a type of Jesus Christ. The way he was treated by his own brothers was a type or a picture of how Jesus would be treated and was treated by his own brothers, the Jews. For example, Joseph's brothers were moved with envy, we're told. The Gospels say that Pilate knew that it was for envy that the Jewish leaders delivered Jesus unto him. Joseph was sold for a few pieces of silver, so was Jesus. Joseph was punished for sins he did not commit. Jesus, the sinless one, was punished for our sins. Joseph was cast into prison. Jesus is described as descending into the prison of this earth, Hades. Joseph became ruler of the prison. Jesus preached in Hades and led everyone captive there out. All those in the paradise section of Hades were brought to heaven. Joseph miraculously was freed from prison. Jesus miraculously arose from the grave. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. One of my favorite types 
is how Joseph prefigures the second coming of Jesus back to the nation of Israel. It was during a time of famine that Joseph's brothers went to Egypt looking for help. They stood before the prime minister of Egypt, not recognizing him to be their own brother whom they had despised. As Joseph began to question them when they appeared before him a second time, they admitted that they had sinned greatly against their brother. Then in that powerful and very emotional scene, Joseph said to them, I am Joseph, and he revealed himself to them. It wasn't until the second time they saw him that Joseph's brothers realized who he was. So too, it's going to be after going through a time of extreme suffering, the great tribulation on the earth, that Israel will finally recognize Jesus Christ in his second coming. Now, the next leader mistreated by the Jews that Stephen talks about was Moses. There's a long passage here from verse 17 to verse 36 where he tells that story. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were just summarized for you. So if you're behind on your Bible reading, skip ahead to Deuteronomy. Stephen was a walking cliff's notes. Remember in high school and college when you didn't have time or actually just didn't want to read the assignment? You'd go to this, uh, you know, the bookstore, and there would be a rack of Cliff's Notes, and it was a, just a few-page summary of these monster novels that you were supposed to read, 500 pages condensed into a 10-word summary. 
Uh, and, and man, I got through school on those kinds of things. Stephen's the guy you'd want to sit next to when you were taking a history test if you were prone to cheating. Let me just say, no one sat next to me. <laughs> now, like Joseph, Moses was rejected by the Jews as their leader and on more than one occasion. Again, reading between the lines, you can see Moses as a type of Jesus. For example, Moses was raised in a great palace, but he left it to live among and deliver his people. So Jesus, the eternal God in heaven, left heaven to live among us and deliver us when he took upon himself a body of flesh in the incarnation. After he was rejected, Moses went out into the land of the Gentiles, took for himself a Gentile bride, and begat children. So too, after he was rejected by the Jews, Jesus went to the Gentile nations and is taking a Gentile bride, we call it the church, with many sons and daughters from every race, tribe, people, and tongue. The Jews historically had a very bad track record of how they treated their leaders. Joseph and Moses were just the tip of the persecution iceberg. In a moment, Stephen would accuse his accusers of mistreating Jesus, the one leader whom Joseph and Moses prefigured. He sets up his conclusion by reminding the Jews that Moses himself, whom they claimed to revere, spoke of the coming of a greater one than himself. In verse 37, he said, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Stephen will tell them that the prophet Moses mentioned, their future Messiah, the just one, whom he, as he puts it, was none other than Jesus, whom they crucified. But first, he turned his attention to the Jewish attitude towards the law of Moses, because this was another one of their accusations against him. And so in verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephain, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. The Jews got tired of waiting while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. They had Moses' brother Aaron mold them a golden calf. And then they said, that's our God, and they worshiped the golden calf in a drunken, naked orgy. So much for their respect of the law. What about the land? Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. 
God had given them a tabernacle in the wilderness. It was essentially a portable system of worship. It was a pattern or a copy of what exists in heaven. As important as their land was and is, they, need, they did not need to be in the land to worship God. For many years, they worshiped God outside of the land in this portable tabernacle. After they settled the land and David became king over Israel at Jerusalem, he desired to build God a more permanent sanctuary, the temple. David planned and prepared for it, and then his son Solomon built it. But interesting in that story, God never asked for it. The Jews were revering the temple in the land as if it were God's only dwelling place and not simply a model of heavenly things to come. They were putting too much emphasis on the physical temple when all along God wanted to dwell within them and make them His temple. All of this outward stuff about the land and the temple were pictures to show them what God truly desired. They were ignoring the pictures, ignoring the, the, the substance, and going after the shadow. Stephen had breezed through over 2,000 years of Jewish history at breakneck speed. Along the way, he answered the accusations against him by showing that it was the Jews themselves who undermined their leaders, their law, and the land. They did it historically, and they were doing it now. For his part, he had a clear understanding of how God was working in and through history to prepare them to receive their ultimate leader, Jesus Christ, who would fulfill the law and thereby open up for them the way into the heavenly sanctuary while dwelling within them as his temple on the earth. Now, before moving on to Stephen's application and accusation, I want to mention something. Stephen saw Jesus on every page of Scripture. He could follow him through the entire Bible, even those boring parts that we rarely read in the Old Testament. Philip will do the same thing in just a little while. Philip, one of the men chosen with Stephen to serve the widows, he'll become prominent. He'll become the church's first missionary, really. And while waiting along the road, he encounters an Ethiopian official on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. After contacting the man and seeing that he was reading from the book of Isaiah, you're told, and I quote, that beginning at that very scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And so Philip shows us that wherever you're reading, I can tell you about Jesus Christ from it. Then on the road to him, or earlier I should say, on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus had met two disciples who did not recognize him. As they walked along, you're told that, and I quote, beginning at Moses and the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Focus on Jesus when you read and study the Bible, and you will be able to find and follow him all the way through its pages. The Bible is full of history, it's full of geography, it's geology, mathematics, uh, theology, any kind of ology practically that you can think of. And there's a lot of things that we're interested in and a lot of knowledge that we acquire. But according to uh, Jesus, according to Philip, according to Stephen, according to the writers of the Bible itself, he comes in the volume of the book, it is written of me, says the Lord. He's there on every page. And in the end, it's that personal relationship with Jesus Christ 
that we're after. Stephen's argument was over. You see, it wasn't really a defense. It was an accusation, and it's going to get very poignant in a moment. In the last few verses, we see that you are enabled to follow Jesus all the way through suffering. Stephen applied his history lesson First, as to the land in which their temple stood, he said in verses 48 through 50, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? As important as their promised land was and still is today, it wasn't Stephen who was disrespecting it, it was them. God could never be contained by an earthly temple. It was always a pattern of something so much better. The veil in that temple had, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies that represented the presence of God to them had been torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. All the Sanhedrin knew this. All of Israel knew this. And it signified that the way in to God's presence was now open. Through Jesus, you could go directly into the presence of God in heaven, spiritually speaking. God was done with the temple. It was they who were disrespecting God by holding on to the ritual and sacrifice of the temple. Talk about putting God in a box. God had opened up the way through Jesus Christ. All the symbol, all the shadow was gone, and now they had the substance, and all they could do is order a replacement veil. Hey, don't we have one of those just in case God ever decided to tear it in half? Who's got the replacement veil? And they patched that thing up and went right back to their system of worship, ignoring all of these things. Next, Stephen accused them pretty boldly of their mistreatment of their leaders. <clears throat> you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. I point out, I've been pointing out to you through Acts just the absolute in-your-face boldness of Peter and now Stephen. Now, Stephen, he's a humble guy. This is what God is telling him to say. This isn't out of anger. He's not being vengeful. This isn't like, well, I'm going I'm to get this off my chest before you kill me. Now, I'm sure Stephen, listening to the voice of the Lord, waiting upon the Lord, maybe even, I mean, wouldn't you say, Lord, are you sure these are the exact, it's not that he feared for his life, obviously he's fearless, but Lord, are you sure we want to be calling these guys stiff-necked, uncircumcised uh, killers? Is that really, did I hear you right? Can you repeat that, <coughs> heaven, can you repeat that please? <coughs> Reminds me of that scene in Apollo 13, if you have the freedom to watch that movie where Tom Hanks realizes that they've told him to do something that will cost them their chance. At, are you telling us, did I hear you right? And then he gets off and he says, we just lost the moon, guys, because he knew that there's no way they could land. And so, you know, Stephen's like, well, okay, God, here goes. Now, they were in the long line of those who persecuted and killed the servants of God. They were the worst in that long line because they killed the one whom Moses and all the prophets and patriarchs actually pointed to, Jesus Christ, 
the just one, their Messiah, and the Savior of the world. Finally, Stephen accused them of breaking God's law, and he did it very directly. He said, you've received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. God's law was and is glorious. They had reduced it to a mere outward hypocrisy. They weren't keeping it. A good example was their opposition to the apostles and now Stephen. These guys were going around proving from the Scripture that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all of these things, and they were trampling on those scriptures because of their personal hatred, because of uh, you know, their personal disdain for anything that was different than their own religious ideas. It's interesting, the word resist in verse 51 I used to think of this as them resisting the wooing or the call of the Holy Spirit in their heart, and that's part of it, but it really means to rush against and seize with the idea of doing someone harm. They were resisting the Holy Spirit by seizing the Spirit-filled man to harm him. And that's what it means. So you always resist the Holy Spirit means you want to take me and kill me. And they're resisting the Spirit because He is in me. Resistance, of course, was futile. And so in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at Him with their teeth. What does this even look like? How do you gnash at somebody with your teeth? I mean, you know, these guys, you have to see the scene. These guys are all dressed up in their robes. And I mean, they were way better decked out than our modern day judges. You know, I mean, judges wear robes. But these guys, you know, they were all done up. And all of a sudden, they were like, mm, mm. I mean, how do you do that? I can't even gnash my teeth. Some of you people do gnash your teeth. You grind your teeth at night. That's why your teeth are only this big now. But no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I, I mean, gnashing of teeth, it, it reminds me of uh, 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 tearing somebody apart as a wild beast would tear into the flesh of prey. I've been watching a show uh, on the Discovery Channel called Man vs. Wild. How many of you have seen that? Yeah, it's a great, it's this British ex-special uh, uh, services soldier. They drop him by parachute into the most remote areas of the world, and then he shows you how to survive. And uh, the last show I saw, they're not in order, but he was in Africa on the savannah, and um, he didn't have any water, so he found some fresh elephant dung, and he wrung it out and got some drops of, of liquid out of that. Uh, just kill me, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it comes to that, just kill me now. But he was so excited because he came on a, a fairly fresh zebra kill. Uh, and he could tell it was fresh because there were no maggots, uh, you know. Of course, if there had been maggots, he would have eaten those. But uh, he did that on a previous show. But he was so excited about this fresh kill, and then he just started eating the zebra, you know, like, he, like and I thought, that's what I thought of when I thought, of, this is what these guys want to do. They want to kill Stephen and, in a sense, cannibalize him. They hate him so much. And so, exhibit A in Stephen's defense, obviously the scriptures had had no real effect on the lives of these men. I mean, if you want to talk about, hey, we all say we believe in the Bible, or what they would, we would call the Bible, what they would call the, you know, the, the scriptures, uh, it, obviously it's had no effect on you guys. Exhibit B, Stephen, in contrast to them. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Okay, this is not a good closing argument. I mean, not if you're trying to get off and be acquitted. I don't think Stephen cared about that. It was just so glorious to him. He was already in some other kind of dimension, as it were, than these guys. But what a perfect way to portray the conflict between the grace of God and the sin of man. One man filled with the Spirit seeing Jesus Christ in heaven and the religious leaders of that day gnashing at him with their teeth, desiring to kill him. And then think again about the key points in the discussion. We talked about leader, law, and land. If there was any doubt that Stephen had been trying to show them Jesus through the Scriptures, it was gone now. There he was, their leader, having ascended into heaven because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, and now he opened the way to the real promised land, heaven. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they said that they believed in. Their resistance was futile. It would become fatal for Stephen. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Stephen became the first martyr of the church age. It's been said, and it's a famous saying, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is nowhere more true than right here. Saul was there. It's the Saul we know by his Roman name, Paul. The blood of Stephen would plant a seed in Paul's heart. He would be saved and become the greatest Christian on record, planting churches all over the known world and writing a large portion of the New Testament. Verse 59, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Asleep there is, is the Christian lingo for his body expired, but his spirit was received by the Lord. Does all this sound familiar to you? Jesus, when he was being crucified in the Gospel of Luke, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Stephen was able to find Jesus on every page of Scripture. Now he was enabled to follow his Lord all the way through suffering. The word martyr is from the word witness. If you are a Christian, you are already a martyr because you are a witness. You may never have to die for your witness, but you will probably suffer for it. If men do not repent when you show them the gospel and share with them the gospel, they will resist the Holy Spirit in you in some way. It may not be violent, but in some other way they will. It's no matter to you if you see Jesus spiritually. Stephen actually saw him from the earth at the end of his life. And you know what I was thinking about that? You and I, we also will actually see Jesus when we leave the earth. If you're alive and remain until Jesus comes to rapture the church from earth to heaven, then you too will see him standing to receive you. If you fall asleep, if you die, the Bible says you are immediately absent from the body and you're present with the Lord. You will stand before Jesus. He will reward you as his good and faithful servant as you enter in to the joy of your Lord forever and ever. We're not so much different than Stephen, really, 
at the end of our lives. Uh, the, the key is to just allow the Lord to fill us with his spirit to be more like him day by day while we're alive. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Stephen, our brother, your first martyr of the church age. But Lord, as we study the, his life and the lives of these uh, men and women, Lord, in the book of Acts, I pray we would be reminded that they are men and women of like passions as we are. There's nothing really special about them. They were average, ordinary, everyday Christians uh, who were gripped by your love and filled with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would at least have a longing in our hearts to be uh, walking in that baptism of your spirit, knowing that it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that things are accomplished, and then uh, disciplining ourselves, Lord, to be going on being filled with your spirit, reading your word, seeing you there, confessing our sin, keeping ourselves in a place where you can use us. I pray, Lord, that uh, as Jacob mentioned at the beginning of our service, Lord, if any of us have slipped away from that place of first love, it's always us that moves, Lord, never you. Your love is rich and full and everlasting from eternity to eternity. If we've moved away, Lord, I pray that we would draw back to you. If we have things to repent of, that we would do it. Uh, Lord, knowing that you have, uh, are faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from any and all unrighteousness. Not to accomplish anything, Lord. We're not asking that you would do something to make us mighty in word or deed. We really just want to get back in touch with who you are, with the wonder of your love. We want to be giddy with the joy and excitement of our engagement. Do those things, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. God's blessing upon you. Meet somebody that you don't know before you leave today. Uh, you know, just if you don't recognize somebody, make your way up to them and say hi to them and uh, see what the Lord would do with that. Cafe will be open. Uh, I'll explain what cold brew coffee is to you if you'd like, but only if you're interested because uh, it takes about 15 minutes. May God bless and keep you. There'll be some of the guys that will be here to pray with you also after church. God bless you.
desire for you 